Good evening and welcome to a Friday night edition of Tisky Sour. We have five, yes, five massive stories for you this evening. Labour taking the lead in the polls for the first time since January. I'm joined, as on every Friday, by Aaron Bastani. How are you doing, Aaron? Yeah, I'm good, Michael. How are you doing? I am very well. Um, excited for tonight's show. First story. When Boris Johnson first announced a hike to national insurance to pay for social care, many pundits suggested it was a stroke of electoral genius. This was a politician culturally on the right, leaning into left-wing economics and therefore hitting a sweet spot when it comes to public opinion. However, it didn't take long for the idea that Johnson's tax hike was progressive to completely unravel. A majority of the public rightly see the regressive tax as unfair. And now, according to YouGov, it's cost the Tories a polling lead they've held since January. Labour are on 35 and the Conservatives on 33. Um, it's the changes that really matter here. So Labour are up one and the Tories are down five. So a fairly significant drop there. The Lib Dems are up two to ten. Um, YouGov also had reform taking some votes from the Conservative Party. That's the party that used to be the Brexit party. Um, worrying for the Tories, although, you know, I don't need to tell you that's not a huge lead and it's just one poll. There are some much bigger margins when it comes to how people have viewed the national insurance hike, though. In the same poll, YouGov asked... Thinking about the national insurance and social care changes announced this week, do you think they will leave you personally better off or worse off? Better off, only 1% of people think these changes will make them better off, and 58% think they will make them worse off. Now, you might think, oh, this is a tax hike. Why would anyone think it makes them better off? But the idea of this is that it should be to pay for social care or improvements to the NHS, which will improve people's lives. But people clearly think this is going to take away more from them than it is going to give to them in improved services. Um, they also asked about Boris Johnson and the Conservative Party, and these results should be, I imagine, especially worrying to the wonks in Tory HQ. Um, YouGov asked respondents, thinking about Boris Johnson and the Conservative Party, do you think they do or do not care about keeping taxes low? Only 22% said they do. 59% said they do not. Now, the flip side of this, you might think, OK, they're not the party of low taxes, but now are they the party of public services? Again, it doesn't seem so. So asked whether or not Boris Johnson and the Conservative Party do or do not care about improving the NHS, only 31% said do and 53% said do not. Aaron, I want your thoughts on these results. Mm. Boris Johnson has had a bit of a Teflon quality throughout his decades-long career. Do you think he's now blown it? No, absolutely not. And I think if you're going to impose tax rises as the PM, you're obviously not going to do it in the middle of the pandemic. You're obviously not going to do it in the year before a general election. So if he was going to do it, it would be now. I mean, if these are the only tax raises that we see from the Tories before 2024, I don't think it's going to have a major, a major set of consequences for them. No, of course, that might not be the case. It might be the first tax increase of many, like we saw from the Conservatives during the 1990s. Uh, and they did genuinely lose their reputation for being a low tax party. And Labour didn't actually win by saying we want better public services through higher taxation because they never actually made the argument for higher taxation. They made and won the argument for better public services. Of course, that's quite easy to do. The worry is if Boris Johnson does go down that route again, yes, 
you could even foresee Labour becoming a government of some kind, although it looks unlikely at this point. That's another story altogether. Um, but even if that did happen, you, you still have to make the case for how you're going to pay for the increased public services, the improved public services, the the social care, the social housing, the you know the pub, public ownership of various uh, of various institutions, whether it's rail, whether it's energy, water. That's not going to cost as much as the Daily Mail or the Sun claim, but it's still going to cost some money. And so, uh, I, I, yeah, it, it is something that Labour are going to have to eventually engage with. And no, I don't think it's it's one poll. And look, the Times don't often run polls on a Thursday evening. They did that because this is a topic where they want to really make a hit with the Tories because it's a tax increase. Uh, and I think the polls by Sunday might have looked very different. So it's about sending a rocket up Boris Johnson's ass and putting the frighteners on him, saying, look, we don't like tax increases. Don't do this too often. Otherwise, we'll make your life very difficult. There are a few more issues to mention about the polling. We're not going to obsess about it all, all show. Um, one issue is where these Tory voters are going. As you would have noticed in that poll, the more significant thing was the drop in the Tory vote, not the increase in the Labour one. According to Chris Curtis, who is a, a pollster um, of those who voted Tory in 2019, now only 53% are sticking with the Conservatives. Only 5%, though, are switching to Labour. So 13% are going to other parties and 28% say they are now undecided. Um, in terms of the poll being within the margin of error, I don't think we should take any single poll too seriously, but it is worth noting that this is the continuation of a trend. Um, Boris Johnson was building up a huge gap between the Tories and the Labour Party throughout much of this year since around about June that has gone into reverse. The gap has been narrowing for a very long time. Finally, on polls, a word of warning that we shouldn't take these necessarily too seriously. These are the averages of polling for the Labour Party and the Conservative Party from 2010 to 2015. The Labour Party were ahead for almost all of the Parliament, often by quite large margins. The Tories still came out from that election with a majority. Of course, they went into that election as part of a coalition government. So that was a brilliant result for the Conservatives. And you wouldn't have guessed it by looking at five years' worth of opinion polling. Before we move on from this topic, Aaron, should we avoid the polls, ignore the polls altogether, or are we being told something useful from these new findings by you, Govan, from, from the polls we often discuss on the show? Well, good, good polling is obviously it's, it's useful for a political party. It's not a bad thing to be polling well. But I think, you know, if you're looking at election polling this far out from a general election, you should think of it like the Premier League, right? You don't look at who's leading the Premier League two or three games into the season. You generally look after Christmas by March, April. And look, if, if there is a significant polling lead for a political party like Labour in the run up to election like in 1997, yeah, that's really, really important. Equally, if Labour, and this applies to Keir Starmer, it applies to whoever, if Labour are within touching distance of the Tories or vice versa, as was the case with Cameron and, and Ed Miliband, before the campaign starts, four or five points, then that's very easily made up. So, uh, you know, I said this yesterday, it's just one poll and people were getting really upset. And it, they were, you know, yeah, it's just one poll, you know. And the fact that the Tories have basically collapsed on this issue, according to this one poll, which may be an outlier, and Labour have picked up so little, would suggest that, that there is a ceiling with Starmer which is probably mid-30s, 35%. Now, it's important to say, Fred Miliband, 35% in 2015 was viewed as his path to getting into 10 Downing Street. And from what people have been saying, if this was correct, Labour would form a government. 
However, then you look at the polling for Labour in Scotland, I think they're down four up there, the SNP, remarkable poll, put them on 51. So that would suggest they're not going to pick up any seats in Scotland. So if you're not going to pick up any seats in Scotland, you're not going to form a government as Labour. You're just not. Um, unless something ultra strange happens with Lib Dem voters. And I think that, for me, is the really interesting story of the last several months, is that the Tories have major problems, actually. I think their vote is really soft. I said this again last night on Twitter, uh, and it upsets some Starmer supporters. You'd think the, the, the opposite, but there we are. The Tory vote is really, really soft, particularly in the South, particularly to the Lib Dems. Uh, and that might obviously, again, help Starmer get into 10 Downing Street. But I can't really see Labour right now benefiting from that. We're a couple of years out from election. That's fine. And, you know, there, there's an argument to say, keep your powder dry. I don't agree with it. I don't think you agree with it that much either. But, you know, you need you need some evidence to suggest he's doing a good job. Right now, we're not seeing it. Boris Johnson's hike to national insurance has gone down with the public like a cup of cold sick. Labour strategists, therefore, might feel confident, given Starmer vocally opposed it. However, when it comes to articulating an alternative to the Tory social care plan, the Labour leader is far less convincing. Take a look at this excruciating interview Starmer did this week with Sky's Beth Rigby. When it comes to funding it, I wouldn't uh, look to working people um, and have a tax hike on them. And I, would say, I, I would say that those with the broader shoulders um, should mean? pay. Well, that means that um, those that earn their money or their income from uh, things other than work should pay their fair share. Um, well, um, there is we you know there's a whole range of uh, things we could look at here. But pe- pe- people who earn today. people who earn their money from property, dividends, stocks, shares. Um, you know, capital gains tax, these should all be looked at as a broader, fairer way of raising taxes. So in principle, you would prefer a wealth tax of some sort? I think we should look at all of these options. And we shouldn't say that the whole weight has to fall on working people, that the people who earn their living from a wage, why shouldn't those that get their money from other means, whether it's dividends, stocks, shares, um, property pay their fair share. And the landlord example is a very important one. Why should a landlord not pay a penny, but the working tenant, uh, so because they're earning a wage rather than a rent? you taxes than a raise of income tax? I think we should look across the board at something that is fair, but at the moment... You would the government, prefer a wealth tax to raise an income tax? I think we look at a broad range here, um, but the idea that we don't... The one thing the Can Prime Minister said... Can you just answer that? Just, do you prefer, in principle, wealth taxes to income tax increases? I think we need to look at a range of options. You're not going to answer. Well, we need to look at a range of options, but that includes um, the, the way people earn their money, whether it's from earned wages or whether it's from rent or stocks and dividends. And um, I think we should look at all that because in the end it should be uh, the principle that um, those with the broadest shoulders pay their fair share. Okay, so just to summarise, national insurance, you think you're anti that because you think it's unfair on working people. Income tax could be looked at, uh, but it seems to me that you think that when you say those with the broader shoulders, you are looking at those with wealth taxes, you are looking at those... We're looking at the precisely the um, sorts of income that Rachel Reeves identified yesterday, which is income from property, income from dividends, stocks, shares, etc. The, so um, seven, income that comes, the 17... income that comes not from your wages, because what the government is doing is putting this all on 
on working people. So and that's that is, not that income is tax then, is it? That well, is wealth taxes. Look, I'm trying to pin you down because I actually want you to say yes or no, I think we should look at a wealth tax. It doesn't commit you to the policy. It just says to me that that's your preferred option and that's very clear and it's very clear to the public. Yes, all of those options are a wealth tax. I mean, you know, in the broadest sense of the world and we should look at it. Fair play to Beth Rigby. I thought her exasperated face during that interview was incredibly effective. Um, Aaron, I saw you share this interview on Twitter. It is slightly odd, isn't it? Because Keir Starmer is in quite a strong position here. He's in favour or, you know, apparently he's in favour, even though he's not going to be explicit about it, in, 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 of some form of wealth tax. The Conservatives are pushing through a very unpopular increase to national insurance. He should be shouting about it, yet he sounds like the shifty one. What's going on? You know, I made the joke on Twitter that he looked like, there was a still from the interview, he looked like a divorcee who was being clobbered by his wife and Beth Rigby was the expensive central London lawyer. Uh, who was who was milking the cow? You know, there's that saying, isn't there? In a divorce, you've got the husband and the wife. They're pulling both ends of the cow, and underneath, you've got the lawyer with the others. And it that's kind of what it felt like. It felt like he was being told, "Well, look, Juliet's going to take the London flat, the the house in Umbria, and both dogs." He looked really upset for some reason. That was strange because, like you say, he he was kind of on home territory, and she was making his job really easy. I don't think I don't think she was doing that on purpose. I think she just. Yeah, you know, you're not expecting something that specific this far out from a general election on principle. And he kind of answered it, but then didn't answer it. Do you prefer tax on wealth or on work? And you just need to say, in principle, yes, we would like them. You could just say, we want them both aligned. I mean, that's going to raise a hell of a lot of money, which is, again, what he kind of said, but in a really shifty, poor way. Now, this tells me two things. Firstly, I don't think he believes in anything. I genuinely think he would say whatever the polling said was more popular. Uh, and, and even though the polling is quite good around wealth taxes, there isn't that much data out there. So just don't say anything. And I don't think he really has a kind of moral core on this particularly. Uh, I know some people disagree, but I don't think we've ever had a leader of a major political party in this country get to where they are and believe in so little. That's my personal view. Keir Starmer is about, always has been, and that's fine. That's life. Career progression. And he is in politics. And if you really care about career progression, you want to get to the top of your game. You know, the equivalent of the, the leading CEO in the country or what he was previously as the, the director of public prosecutions as a barrister, the equivalent of that in politics is to become the prime minister. And so he would say purely what is useful instrumentally in order to achieve that uh, career ambition. I mean, that's not good. I, that's my personal view. I don't think that's particularly good. Again, people can disagree with me. If he had been asked a question about Jeremy Corbyn or about the left, or about how somebody who'd been suspended or accused of something should be thrown out of the party and they happen to be a socialist or an MP or Ken Loach, he would have been very critical, he would have been very stern, he would have been very direct and decisive, all the things he's not in that clip. And so that, for me, is the biggest worry of all. You know, you might agree or disagree with Starmer on some issues, but he clearly is incredibly comfortable in attacking the left and not really saying very much about policy. You can't run a country like that. You cannot run a country like that. Right. That's clearly not a that's not a program for government. And I think the electorate will has already worked that out. You clearly can't run a general election campaign like that. I mean, they can try. And I think they probably will do that. And I think that'll start, by the way, uh, with his um, with his conference speech in, in, in a few weeks. I think Keir Starmer will make his conference speech about the left. I think it'll be a rerun of Kinnock in 1985, partly because it's his comfort zone, as I've just said, partly because he's literally got nothing else to say. And he knows that the media, generally speaking, is going to lap that up. They're not going to push back on it. 
Whereas, of course, if he says I support policy A over policy B, there's a bit more, you know, criticism and the Tories will weigh in. He attacks the left. He attacks Corbyn. He attacks people like Navarro Media. Uh, that's just great for him. And the Tories get on side and it takes the heat off him and removes some of that political pressure, which he insists on putting on himself by being so bad as a politician. That's the right comparison to make, actually. If he was asked about Jeremy Corbyn, he'd say, look, this is an issue of leadership. I have to take a strong position because that's what it means to lead a party because I want to lead the country. If he's asked about policy, he says, well, don't ask me. I'm just a leader of the opposition. We haven't done a manifesto yet. I'm, I'm not here to, to take leadership on the issue. <laughs> you know, so I, I think it's a, it's, it's a very important um, comparison to make how he is when he's asked those questions, whether uh, the option given to him is whether or not he's going to attack the left and the ones where it's whether or not he's going to put forward a different vision for the country. Um, one politician who is um, attempting to put forward a vision for the country is Andy Burnham, um, mayor of Manchester and probably Keir Starmer's biggest rival at the moment. Um, he's written a piece in the Evening Standard slamming Boris Johnson's Social care plan isn't enough, he says. Labour needs its own ideas. So in this piece, Andy Burnham is obviously saying what Keir Starmer's doing is enough. He needs to put forward a positive vision, a positive alternative. And he explains this is what he wants it to be. Labour should create a national care service. Labour should ask all older people to contribute whether they need care or not goes on, everyone benefits from this approach because it means no one has to worry about care costs in the later stages of their life. And by asking all older people to contribute, the cost comes right down. More than 10 years ago, I promised this approach as health secretary as part of my plan for a national care service. My 10% care levy on all the states was labelled a death tax, but I still stand by it. I accept that my care levy wouldn't pay for the entire social care bill, so I would supplement it with a range of wealth taxes, such as a higher rate of capital gains tax. This is a truly far-reaching Labour policy, and I think the country is now ready to back it. As we get ready to gather in Brighton, the political tide might just be turning in Labour's favour, but we've got to be ready to catch the wave. A clear challenge um, from Andy Burdham, a very pointed intervention. There is pushback from Keir Starmer's team. They're defending um, the position of not having a position. Um, this is from Patrick Maguire from The Times. He was told by a senior party source, we're far from victory, but the polls show that the social care scam wasn't the brilliant wheeze number 10 was spinning earlier this week, and our decision to focus attention on their plan, expose it, and not get spooked into making a big announcement of our own in response, despite some flack, was the right one. Aaron, um, what do you make of Andy Burnham's intervention and also that defence from a senior party source that actually not having a, a fully fleshed out policy gives them more space to attack the Conservatives without this becoming you know, uh, distracting? Well, how much would Labour's cost? What are the holes in Labour's policy? Sure. Who, who do you think is sure. right here? There's some truth to it, of course. And I don't think Labour needs to, you know, line by line, fully cost how they would, you know, reform social care in this country. However, I think that that's a fundamental misrepresentation of the criticism that you or I would make. Do you support the principle of wealth tax or tax on work? That's really simple. He didn't do it. And I think he was, you know, he, it's, a, it's an open goal. It is really an open goal. So I don't, I don't think that's, I don't think it was a masterstroke to not say that personally. In terms of Andy Burnham, you know, he, he gets a lot of flack. People say he'd be Starmer Mark II, he's a Blairite, or, you know, that's, that's where he came from, right? His, his trajectory is certainly from there. But you have, to, you have to also be fair. You know, in 2010, when he ran for the leadership, 
he, he was talking about national care service then as health secretary under Gordon Brown, he was talking about social care more than a decade ago. Uh, so I, I believe him when he says we need to do X and this is how we'll fund it. And I also believe he, he's thought about it. You know, it's not last minute politicking to, to, to get some popularity because he's been saying that same thing for so long. Uh, and Burnham is a former SPAD, former special advisor. So we can, we can you know, lambast SPADs all day. There are many ex-SPADs in politics, Ed Miliband, Yvette Cooper, Ed Balls, Andy Burnham, uh, David Miliband, the list goes on. That whole John Ashworth, that whole group of sort of post-Blair sort of advisors going into Labour after 2010 basically defined the party. Um, and that's why Corbyn really upset so many people. He wasn't a former SPAD. But they do know a bit about policy. And they are quite familiar with questions around whether it's social care, education, tax, defence, whatever, because they've been doing this for 10, 20 years. In the case of Burnham, about 20 years. Uh, Keir Starmer was a, was a lawyer until 2015. And so I'm sure he's going to learn a great deal. He's going to get down to the brass tacks of, of political economy and so on. But he, he doesn't know a lot of this stuff. You know, we go back to that story, which was in the Sunday Times a couple of months ago, about him basically doing, you know, an economics for dummies 101 with uh, Charlie Faulkner and Ed Miliband. What makes us different? I mean, people might think I'm making this up. Go check it out. Charlie Faulkner, Ed Miliband, Keir Starmer, Sunday Times. They, he was asking, what makes us different to the Tories when it comes to the economy? And they had to tell him. I don't think Andy Burnham has those problems because he's been doing this for so long. And that's why I think, you know, what he's saying on social care, totally authentic. You might say, well, I think he's talking a load of crap. He's being opportunistic on X, Y, Z. And that's because he wants to be leader of the Labour Party, he wants to be the Prime Minister. I may or may not agree with you, depending on the issue. I don't think that's the case with social care. Keir Starmer's people would say even what Andy Burnham is saying is, you know, that opens up a lot of avenues for them to attack the Labour Party when, you know, at the moment, the Conservatives are having a difficult moment. I, I wouldn't necessarily advocate something as concrete as, as Andy Burnham is suggesting right now, even though I think it's a good policy position. But there is a there is a big middle ground, which is just for Keir Starmer to say, I support progressive income taxes and I support wealth taxes. He doesn't have to give amounts. Neither of those things are unpopular. So it just seems like an own goal to me. Let's go on to our next story. The global Black Lives Matter movement has this week gained an unlikely supporter. Queen Elizabeth II. The support of the monarch for the movement for racial equality was revealed by Sir Kenneth Elisa, a senior representative of the Queen and the first black Lord Lieutenant of Greater London. Kenneth Elisa told Channel 4, I have discussed with the royal household this whole issue of race, particularly in the last 12 months since the George Floyd incident. It's a hot conversation topic. The question is, what more can we do to bind society to remove these barriers? They, the royal family, care passionately about making this one nation bound by the same values. He was asked explicitly, does this mean um, that the Queen supports the principles of the Black Lives Matter movement? And Sir Kenneth said, the answer is easily yes. This story made it to the front pages of both The Times and The Telegraph. Lots of people think this is a big bit of surprising news. Do you think this is significant? Come on, Michael, what do you think? Look, she was the monarch during the 1950s. So she'll have been queen for 70 years quite soon, I think, right? Is that right? I think, I think, I think it's mid-50s. Anyway, you know, she was, she was the heir apparent. She was the, you know, the next in line when Britain was in. And she was young. I'm sure she wasn't fully on top of all the facts, but... When Britain was dealing with the Mau Mau insurgency in Malaya and 150,000 people were killed because they wanted to effectively end a system of economic and, and racial apartheid in their country. And it was repressed brutally by the British. 
Very similar thing happened in uh, Malaya, previously like Kenya. Elsewhere in Malaya, there was a similar insurgency put down. It's called the Malaya Emergency from 45 to about 51, 52. And uh, again, you know, the, the tactics you see used by the US and Vietnam, Agent Orange, concentration camps, uh, torching, torching forest. By the way, the British were using that in India in the, in the 19th century. That was being pioneered by the British after the Second World War, and the Americans would imitate that in Vietnam. That was when she was, you know, a princess and a queen. So I don't quite understand what's changed. You know, Black Lives Matter now, but they didn't matter when Britain was fighting the, the Mau Mau insurgency in Kenya in the 50s. I guess now it's because the culture's changed, right? That's the answer. And that's why she says what she does. Is the queen personally racist? I have no idea. You know, I've never met the lady. You hear some nice things about her. You see some, hear some bad things about her. And I'm a Republican, Michael. You know this. I'm sure our audience knows this. But I thought it was quite touching how her visit to Grenfell was talked about. Because I remember watching that at the time thinking, wow, she's she's braver than most of our political class, certainly Theresa May. But I, I think the idea that she supports Black Lives Matter is ridiculous. She's the she's the unelected sovereign for a bunch of countries which we colonize, which are primarily comprised of black people. If you think their lives matter so much, let them choose their own head of state. So I, I, I find it quite strange. You know, this is, but again, it just feeds into this bizarre mythos that we have in Britain. You know, Britain fought for democracy in the Second World War. No, it fought against fascism, hugely important. But we didn't fight for democracy because we had 2.5 million Indians fighting for us. The people who'd been elected as the politicians effectively to lead that country, the Congress Party, were in prison. Gandhi's wife died in prison, right? So this idea that, oh, well, they were fighting for democracy. How could they be fighting for democracy when the elected politicians were, in, were incarcerated? So I don't think she supports, she supports Black Lives Matter. No, I think it's a PR stunt. Uh, but equally, I, I don't know her personal views on, on race either. So I'm not going to denigrate her. There are two angles. One is, do we really believe the Queen is a committed anti-racist? I'll sit on the fence on that one. As you say, Aaron, there's quite a lot of evidence from the past that she shouldn't really um, be considered in that category. The other is, what does this say about the success of BLM, that even the Queen has to say she supports it in, in principle? Now, one argument will be the sort of cynical one, which is to say that even if the Queen can say she supports it, it's become meaningless. But there is quite a strong pushback in newspapers such as The Telegraph and sometimes in the comment pages of The Times to say that even the principles behind Black Lives Matter are flawed because even on the most sort of mainstream interpretation of what they stand for, they believe structural racism exists and they're opposed to it. Now, there will be lots of people, especially in government, who, who say, no, structural racism doesn't exist. This whole idea um, that we need to say that Black Lives Matter is, is mistaken because as it stands, Black Lives Matter, just as much as White Lives Matter, we should stop talking about race. Now, the fact that the Queen has to, um, you know, fall into quite proactively and positively the camp where she's saying, no, we do need a movement such as Black Lives Matter. Those principles are important. It doesn't necessarily say much about her, but I do think it says something about the success of the BLM movement. Do you think I'm being reasonable there, Aaron? No, I, I agree with you entirely. I, I, think it's I think it's remarkable. I mean, does she, she doesn't need to do this, right? You know, I mean, I don't wish her ill will, but she's not, she's not going to be the monarch for much longer, right? I mean, she's, what, 95? Okay, let's say she lives to 105, defies, defies all the statistics. You know, she doesn't need to do this. She's in a very safe situation. We're not going to become a republic in the next 10 years. Her kids, the Prince of Wales, yes, I could see why he would do it. I think from a perspective of political, again, I don't know if he believes it or not, but from a perspective of political expediency and public relations, you'd expect him to do it. But it is a surprise for her to say it. You know, I, I, I'm kind of surprised, you know, it's separate to say, am I, am I sure she really means it? I, I don't know. Is it a courtie that said this is probably a wise thing to say? Possibly, yes. But I don't think she had to do it. 
Uh, and, and like I say, I do think it speaks to the, the, the strength of the movement. And also, Michael, you know, the Commonwealth is really important to her, apparently, as a personal thing. So I think for her to say, I'm, I'm the head of state, uh, not just of the Union, not just of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, but also its crown dependencies. Um, and of course, the Commonwealth, however this long title is, I can't remember all of it. Uh, and I think for you to be such a prominent figure in the Commonwealth, which obviously includes so many countries from the global south, you probably do have to say something like this. But I'm I'm still surprised. I am still really surprised because like you say, Michael, it really does defang, you know, people booing footballers that take the knee, for instance. I mean, it might it might boil the piss of all the right people, which is you know better than nothing. I think so. I don't think it's a bad th- I, look. I don't think it's a bad thing that she's done. I think it's, it's a really the fact that's happened is really positive. Uh, do I think she really means it? I have no idea. I'm just sort of trying to contextualize the British royal family and the in the, in the within the broader history of racism and anti-racism. It's never been overtly anti-racist, uh, but it, it's a funny one. It is a really funny one. Um, William, you'd expect it less her. So you know, maybe maybe she did go and say, who knows? Maybe that now Prince Philip's gone, and you know he was <laughs> he was quite particular about these things. I mean, you can't imagine Prince Philip saying it, right? But maybe she has her own views, and she's not really communicated them, or maybe she's changed her views. There was a great rumor recently, actually, Michael. I don't know if you saw this when Cristiano Ronaldo signed for Manchester United. That you know there was a great rumor going round that was being spread by Manchester United's sort of pretty official-looking Twitter accounts. Some were verified saying that uh, she'd bought 100 Ronaldo shirts and they were all signed and she's a Man United fan. So <laughs> maybe this is like that, you know? Why would, she need a, why would she need 100? Just because she can, because she's the queen, I suppose. They were like the first 100 printed, you know, you know, Ronaldo's shirts. They're the number seven, of course, since he's gone back. And then, you know, there are people tweeting, you know, HRH has read all this nonsense. <laughs> maybe, you know, I mean, make, that, that makes no, no sense either. So maybe, but I find it weird if she's 95 and like, yes. You know, Man United have got a new number seven. Unlikely. Final story. We are used to reporting on the Labour Party disciplining members on spurious grounds, but that a politically motivated purge has now reached new levels of ridiculousness. That's because it's been revealed that the chair of Young Labour is being investigated for opposing transphobia. We'll show you some of the offending tweets that made Jess Barnard a target in a moment. First, here is her response to Labour's National Executive Committee. Barnard writes, I write to you urgently seeking clarification regarding an email I received this morning giving me notice that I am under investigation for challenging transphobia online. I dare say you will agree from the evidence and charges this is absolutely astounding that the party resources are being used on this. There is no discrimination evident in this document. Attacking trans people is not a protected characteristic. I haven't identified any individuals. Therefore, I cannot see why I've been put under investigation from either evidence given or alleged rules broken. I'm also deeply concerned that this email is being sent to me on your behalf at 1am having a huge detrimental impact on my mental health as a young member already facing hostility from some members of staff. This is very much starting to feel like harassment and intimidation. I want to ask if this is being done in the name of the NEC and if not, that this be overturned and there is an investigation as to why people who challenge discrimination against trans people or block abusive accounts are being put under investigation. So Jess Barnard was sent an email at 1am, one in the morning, saying we're putting you under investigation because of your behavior online. Now, you might have seen these sort of disciplinary letters being shared on online before. What they do is they include 
items, which are basically screenshots of what you've said on social media. Now, Jess Barnard shared a couple of these, so a couple of the, the pieces of evidence which party bureaucrats presented to her to suggest that she should be disciplined. Um, a couple of them here. Competition time. Guess how many turf accounts I had to block today. Closest guess gets a gets to pick a charity supporting trans people for me to donate some of my councillor allowance to. Voting closes in 24 hours. Um, now, TERF stands for Trans Exclusionary Radical Feminist. Um, so it's people who uh, basically are opposed to self-identified trans people being considered to be women. Some people say TERF is a slur. It's actually, I think, quite a accurate and you know almost unnecessarily polite way um, of describing people who have some of the views which TERFs espouse online. Um, another tweet which was presented as evidence that Jess Barnard deserved to be investigated was the following. Expect better from a Labour representative. These accounts stalk, harass, incite hatred and abuse towards trans people. Why on earth a Labour councillor would defend them is completely beyond me. There's no fishing for anything. I just won't be intimidated into giving transphobes energy. Nothing offensive about either of those tweets. This is someone with a significant position within the Labour Party chair of Young Labour, democratically elected. You might know her name. We had her recently um, on the show. We do have an update, though. Whilst we've been on air, Heather Stewart from The Guardian tweeted, Labour say they have rescinded the complaint against Jess Barnard, which it says was issued in error. Party spokesperson, we apologise unreservedly to Jess for the hurt and upset this has caused. Wow. This is the second time this has happened in like two weeks where we've done a story which is about the Labour Party behaving in a completely unjustifiable, overbearing way. More recently, it also involved Jess, Jess Barnard. That was when they were saying they couldn't host Jeremy Corbyn or anyone who was involved in Palestine Solidarity Campaign. Then after there was a bit of a Twitter storm, they said, oh, no, 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 no sorry, sorry, uh, we, didn't, we didn't actually mean it. It's just complete chaos. It's complete chaos. Aaron... Um, obviously, it's good that this is being rescinded. That's news that broke as we went live. But the fact that that email got sent at 1am in the first place, what's going on here? What's your analysis? Michael, this is, you know, Keir Starmer says, we will improve workers' rights. Keir, you've got agency workers pinging off emails at one o'clock in the morning. We will defend people's civil liberties. Well, actually, it turns out they're basically harassing you know, young activists. Oh, it was an error, we're told now. It was an error. It was a mistake that somebody found the offending tweets, composed an email, and said that an investigation had been started. No, an, an error is when you send an email to the wrong person. An error is when you uh, mistake one offence for a separate offence. An error is not when you make up an entire case which is spurious and absurd and malicious, contact the person, and only when they've publicly stated this has happened, actually turn around and say, no, we're not going to do this anymore. That's not an error. That's a U-turn because they screwed up really badly. Uh, and look, I, I think, I think if she hadn't done that, I think this would have been, this would have gone ahead. Clearly, there's no quality control right now in terms of disciplinary proceedings. And we, um, is that a surprise, Michael? Because what we've had for a year from Starmer and his cronies on the NEC is we will proceed 2,000, you know, we're going to process 2,000 anti-Semitic complaints or we're going to expel X number of people. Well, if you behave like that, then you get stuff like this. That's, you're literally incentivizing trying to throw out or, or, or investigate as many people as possible. This is what's going to happen. And it's not just been Keir Starmer that talked about this, Michael. Angela Rayner said the same thing. 
you can't work like that. You need to you need to have an investigations process which investigates people when they deserve to be investigated, not because there's some arbitrary target that people have got to meet. Deeply concerning, deeply concerning. And Michael, look, it's an error. Also, when you run the when you run the Home Office and somebody's deported, is that going to be an error? You know, it does it does make you wonder because you're not even doing these necessarily political enemies. This is somebody who's in your own party. And actually, Jess Barnard, as I think anybody who's familiar with her, who saw her on the on the show, she's very considered, very thoughtful, um, and, and and she's been treated appallingly, Michael, appallingly. This is where Keir Starmer's Labour Party is going to go. You know, this is where they're going to go. Deeply unprofessional, attacking the left, no real scruples, no real policy. We could have a conversation about does that mean should you vote for them, etc. When you see the response from some people to her suspension, I got in an altercation with a guy who's a chair of a CLP up in Middlesbrough. My God, we're dealing with some really regressive reactionary people here, really deeply reactionary people uh, who are cheering this on. And now that apparently it was an error, presumably they're not going to be cheering it on anymore, but that, that's, that's what they think. Uh, they want to kick the entire left out of the Labour Party, Michael. This same person I'm talking about, he posted, oh, you know, Copium. I don't need to cope. I, you and I were saying this is probably going to happen if Starmer wins 18 months ago, right? We certainly were saying it a year ago. Well, I was saying it a year ago. You, you priced it in. That's why I didn't vote for the guy, because it was highly likely that this was going to happen. So my, my coping was a while back. Don't worry about that. The point is, how low do you have to be as a political faction to actually persecute and attack and try and investigate somebody on the basis of opposing transphobia? And not even opposing you know, it in a... You know, because I think it's justifiable to get angry and use harsh language if you're opposing bigotry. But from those tweets, that's not even what happened. It was it was a, an elected representative within the Labour Party, a young activist who you know gets all sorts of abuse online, who's very politely, I think, called out transphobia mm. and then yeah. was was put under investigation for it. What she did was a model way of, of engaging with the issue, you know, and I feel like if, if AOC gave some sort of media comms masterclass on an issue, and she was a Labour Party MP, the exact same thing would happen with her, right? Be because she's left-wing. Before you go any further, Michael, I just want to say, in, in recent days, I've been contacted by so many people who are being investigated for the most crazy things. So this is just one example which has come to light, but it was an error. There are dozens, if not hundreds, of cases exa exactly like this, exactly like this, possibly even worse. I want to bring up a, a tweet from Jess Barnard um, in response to the latest developments on this story. She writes, I have received an email rescinding notice of investigation against me. Thank you, everyone, for your solidarity and for my legal team for such swift action. We need a full investigation, urgent intervention against transphobia and an end to hostility towards young members. Again, a very considered reasonable response or a very considered reasonable person who is being intimidated at one in the morning by party stuff. It's gross, um, but it has, uh, we've come to expect it now, haven't we, with the current Labour Party as it is currently constituted under the leadership of Keir Starmer and David Evans. That is us for this evening. Aaron Bastani, as always, it's been a pleasure spending my Friday my night pleasure, with you. My pleasure, Michael. Been my pleasure. I can't wait to be back in the studio, Michael. For now, you've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com/support. <laughs>